You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. These data brokers have generally never gotten consent from any citizen. And by the way, they have information on all 300 million, you know, adult Americans and children at this point. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy, surveillance, law, and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Ben's got the latest in the FTC's antitrust case against Facebook. I've got the story of the Supreme Court considering disclosure of FISA court rulings. Later in the show, my conversation with Rob Chevelle from Delete Me. We're going to be discussing how to protect local officials from doxing and other threats. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, why don't you start things off for us this week? So it's been a a tough couple, uh, maybe three or four days for Facebook. (laughs) Yes, 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 it has. Yes, it has. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we don't want to rub salt in their wounds. Really? You know. know. Or do we? I don't (laughs) don't know. (laughs) I I use it. I admit to using it. I'm not going to, I don't know, how do you pronounce the word? Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude, yeah. Schadenfreude, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I, I, uh, my Facebook account has been inactive since, uh, before. But just before COVID, so probably coming up on two years now. Yeah, so you know I don't want to rag on them too hard, but they've had a, a tough few days. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, on uh, as we're taping this, just a couple of days ago, there was a sixty minutes expose on um, this sort of internal audit that revealed all, all of this dysfunction within the organization. Right, and you know that goes along with some of the negative publicity they've been getting in front of Congress as it relates to Instagram and its exploitation of uh, their youngest users. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, as we're taping this, yesterday there was a Facebook outage, uh, which also caused the outage of, of some of its uh, component parts, like yeah. Instagram and, and WhatsApp. Six hours they were down. It was a long time. Uh, there were rumors that there was a team of people going to reboot the server at a secret yeah. remote location in California. And they had to use angle grinders to get into the secure facilities. Yes, their their uh, badges wouldn't grant them entry into, right. into Facebook headquarters. So Right, um, <laughs> because all those... it was relying on the network that was down. Yep. <laughs> uh, so we, we all had a really pleasant six hours without, you know, reading our aunt's uh, screed, political screeds on, on Facebook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but uh, certainly, it certainly didn't help the uh, stocks of Mr. Zuckerberg. Yeah. Um, we, we saw uh, Facebook really go into the red there. So I don't want to rag on them too much, but— It's too late. It is too late. <laughs> uh, they are also involved in ongoing litigation related to antitrust. So right, right. they were sued—we talked about this uh, several months ago— um, by the FTC alleging that um, they are a monopoly in their space. 
Uh, and the uh, judge in that case threw out that lawsuit saying that the FTC didn't put together a, a valid claim under our antitrust statutes. Mm-hmm. Basically, the idea was that um, they didn't allege specific facts saying that Facebook had a particular market completely cornered to the extent required under our antitrust statutes. Mm-hmm. So the FTC has amended the cam- uh, complaint. They filed a new lawsuit uh, and they are arguing that Facebook shouldn't be compared to other po- uh, popular public-facing social applications like TikTok, YouTube. Um, they say its most relevant rival is Snapchat, hmm. um, which uh, certainly performs some of the same functions uh, as Facebook, but has you know a, a factor in, in the factor of the millions, many fewer uh, users than Facebook or its uh, sister company Instagram. Hmm. Uh, Facebook is challenging this argument, saying that they don't dominate a narrow market of social networks. They call it, quote, a litigation-driven fiction at odds with commercial reality of intense competition, um, limiting their uh, market competition to Snapchat, in the words of Facebook, ignores the competitive reality that there are a lot of services that help people share, connect, communicate, and be entertained. And they mentioned TikTok, iMessage, Twitter, Snapchat, LinkedIn, YouTube, and countless others. I don't think many people are going to LinkedIn to uh, to uh, simply be entertained, but <laughs> you'd be surprised. That, that that's another story, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, so you know, this is uh, I I think Facebook is making a, a compelling point here. I don't think the FTC has dotted all of their I's and crossed all their T's to really describe the market that Facebook is in and why they have cornered that market. To compare Facebook to something like Snapchat, I think doesn't encapsulate everything that Facebook does mm-hmm. because Facebook has the chat function. Facebook has uh, a news feed. Facebook has pages where organizations uh, can, can share information about their work. And that's something that's not perfectly captured in that limited competition. Um, So I think they're right to say that they compete with a whole bunch of other companies more broadly and just happen to fulfill some of the multiple services that that these companies offer. Hmm. Uh, So this is just one of the regulatory challenges Facebook is facing right now. Um, we talked about the whistleblower report. Right. Uh, and they got yelled at in front of Congress um, for uh, some of their exploitative services as, as it relates to um, young people using Instagram. Um, but I think this is probably the biggest threat to their bottom line, being being challenged with this antitrust suit. Mm-hmm. And my read of it is that they're still relatively well-situated to get this uh, this lawsuit dismissed. Really? Hmm. And this is the one where initially the judge said to the FTC, hey, go back, do more homework, and come back with, you know, try again. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. So I think the judge is amenable to saying if you can really – Dig into that antitrust statute, figure out exactly uh, what you have to prove, which is that Facebook has cornered a very specific, discrete marketplace. Then you can bring a valid claim. We can actually get to it on the merits. So the FTC did come back. They tried to argue that Facebook dominates the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're using data about the amount of time people spend on Facebook. Mm. Um, they got this from a commercial data company called Comscore. Um, Facebook argues that um, 
you know, the time people that, – that's an inaccurate way to measure Facebook's market share as it relates to social media in particular because people use Facebook for a whole bunch of different purposes besides social networking. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're going to compare Facebook to Snapchat, which is what the uh, FTC is attempting to do here, it's an invalid comparison. It's, it's apples to oranges because people could be spending the same amount of time on Snapchat and on Facebook as it relates only to social networking, hmm. not to everything else that Facebook does. So, you know, we have a couple of uh, attorneys saying there, there's this one they uh, quote named Charlotte Slayman, um, who is uh, works for a consumer advocacy group called Public Knowledge, saying that she thinks Facebook's out of line, um, that the FTC hasn't uh, made it, made its case strongly enough that you know Facebook uh, hasn't violated antitrust laws, hmm. and she's arguing that. Uh, Facebook is trying to hold the FTC to a standard that's higher than the actual legal standard at this stage where you're just trying to get your foot in the door at court. Hmm. Um, I, I think that is is certainly plausible. Uh, you know, in order to – you have to have a, a well-pleaded complaint that's grounded in the law in order to just get a case heard in court. Right. Your case does not have to be airtight. Otherwise – no cases would make it on the merits. Mm. Um, so I think from that perspective, that might be the FTC's best shot, that they've come up with something that's at least plausible. They haven't proven market dominance. Um, they haven't proven that Facebook is actually a monopoly, but they might have alleged just enough to get it into a legal proceeding where you can actually go into discovery. Uh, you can um, you know, do a more thorough investigation, perhaps get this in front of, in front of a sympathetic jury. Hmm. Uh, so I think that's the best case scenario for the FTC. I still think on the, on the merits, um, as much as I like to rag on Facebook, I think they sort of have it right here that the FTC hasn't quite drilled down on why Facebook is is uh, a monopoly when it hasn't properly situated them in this broader marketplace. What about some of the the folks I see um, making the point, and, and I suppose it's after the horses left the barn that. There should have been more regulatory scrutiny on Facebook at the moment when they were on a buying spree, when they were purchasing Instagram. You know, that that, that would have been um, a, a moment of thoughtfulness to, to say, perhaps you'll be too big if you do this. Yeah, I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh I think it probably would have been better uh, just because, you know, that was a case where Instagram – at the time that Facebook purchased it, was starting to be more of a direct competitor. Mm-hmm. And Facebook was engaging in these monopolistic practices of buying off their competitors using their market power. Mm. Um, that's something where if we had a strong, you know, early 20th century trust-busting uh, regulatory regime, they might have actually done their jobs and ensured that Facebook couldn't uh, have the type of market domination that they have today. Hmm. Uh, but we, we, they, they didn't do that. Uh, so now, you know, we kind of, we are where we are here. They yeah. have acquired Instagram. It is part of their network. It, it should be considered as, as part of any antitrust suit. You know, they, they are making money off of Instagram. So they, are, they do have a large market share in whatever it is that, that Instagram does. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in in the long term, the better solution is to have, you know, more active regulatory agencies who stop these uh, anti-competitive practices 
um, before they, they are allowed to continue. We just haven't done that in any realm in this country uh, in the past 40 years. I mean, yeah. look at the consolidation of the airline industry. Yeah, well, just, I mean, you look at anything. I, I, there's, yeah, so much consolidation uh, all in so many different verticals. You look at things like cable companies, you know, internet providers, all that sort of stuff. My concern with all of that is that you reach the point where these companies are no longer running at a human scale. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, let's just think about cable companies. In the early days of cable TV, you had community cable companies, yep. regional cable companies. And so if you had an issue, chances are you knew somebody or, you know, you knew somebody who knew somebody and you could get some help with your problem. That ain't the way it works anymore. No, and now uh, <laughs> your estimated wait time is right. five hours. Right, it's and like six that old uh, yeah. Lily Tomlin bit. You know, we don't the care. We don't have to. We don't have to care. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm afraid that that's where we're gonna get uh, with Facebook, which is why, if you are very conspiracy minded, mm. which I am not, uh-huh. um, perhaps the outage. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe it was a false flag operation. To, oh, Ben. <laughs> to show the world what would happen if we lost Facebook for several hours and how yeah. our lives would be, uh-huh. uh, you know, completely ruined. We wouldn't be able to communicate to yeah. social network, et cetera. But right. I'm not, I am not a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> no, no. Just no. asking questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, those of us who are not on Facebook, uh, we carried on with our lives as if nothing had happened. It was delightful. <laughs> uh, I, I, it, it, it was delightful, actually. It was act- to be honest, a a really good six hours. (laughs) All right. Well, we will link to uh, this story over on the Washington Post. It's written by Kat Zaksruski. So we'll have a link to that for you to check out. All right. Let's move on to uh, my story. So my story comes from the New York Times. This is written by Adam Liptak, and it's titled, At the Supreme Court, a Plea to Reveal Secret Surveillance Rulings. Uh, the FISA court is something that you and I discuss here fairly regularly. Yep, our old friends <laughs> at the FISA court. And uh, we talked about, in fact, it was a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, I was not aware that FISA went all the way back to 1978. Mm-hmm. Uh, this article points out that um, as a result of the Snowden leaks in 2013, um, Congress passed a new law called the USA Freedom Act. Gotta love that name. Yeah, it's also also an acronym, by the way, just like the USA Patriot Act. Okay. Yep. What is it? Oh, so freedom stands for it something? It stands for something. Yeah. Okay, Hold great. Hold on, Elliot. I can say what it stands for. So the bottom line here is that um, the ACLU has filed a motion uh, seeking disclosure of major FISA court decisions that took place between the September 11th attacks and, and the 2015 uh, Freedom Act of 2015. Freedom Act, the Freedom Act of 2015, and the ACLU is saying that um, we that that the First Amendment re- should require that we have more disclosure here of what's going on in the FISA court. Now, an interesting wrinkle here is that, as I read it, and and uh, you can correct me here if I'm wrong, Ben, the the Freedom Act of 2015 puts the um, the discretion of disclosure in the executive branch. That's exactly right. Yep. And so the argument that the ACLU is making is that this discretion should be under the judicial branch's jurisdiction. Uh, am I getting this right, Ben? That's absolutely correct. So what happened with the 2015 USA Freedom Act, uh, among other things, 
what Congress did was give the executive branch some discretion, uh, but advised it to release uh, controversial or consequential FISA decisions to the extent practicable, to the greatest extent practicable. Basically, um, unless there is some major national security obstacle reason why an opinion cannot be released, it should be released. Hmm. And so we've actually had a, a decent record over the past six years since the USA Freedom Act was enacted and having significant FISA decisions be released. Now, hmm. they're often released behind schedule. Um, so when we have these annual programmatic uh, FISA court decisions where, where they might review, for example, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act – which allows for the collection of, of online content of, of non-U.S. persons. Yeah. They review that every year programmatically. Sometimes we'll get that, you know, six to 12 months after they've already granted approval, so it's not going to be as useful. Hmm. Um, it's hard to raise a fuss once uh, the die has already been cast. I see. Uh, but to their credit, to the executive branch's credit in both the Trump and Biden administrations, uh, we have received, we, we do end up seeing a lot of these um, redacted but released FISA opinions. Hmm. The relevant period at issue in this case is from September 11th, 2001 through the enactment of the USA Freedom Act. And there are a lot of extremely consequential decisions that took place during that 14-year time frame. Um, largely, we know about the existence of, of a lot of surveillance authorities from that period because of the Edward Snowden disclosures and other disclosures. Um, but for example, uh, you know, this is the time period where the FISA court decided that Section 215 of the USA Patriot Act, um, which allows for the collection of tangible things, justified the collection of nearly all domestic phone records in the United States. Mm. So we were getting some very consequential decisions, uh, and it's still a major blind spot for the civil liberties community. Um, courts are, are reliant on these decisions. Uh you know they're they're still binding on our on our court system, even though they haven't been released to the public. Oh. Um, so that's really what this case uh, is about. There are a couple of interesting wrinkles here that I'll mention. Yeah, the first is a general justiciability uh, wrinkle. So there was a similar case that ended up going to the FISA Court of Review, um, which I always say is the best gig if you're going to be a judge because they've <laughs> been in existence since 1978, and I think they've met three times wow. in their existence, <laughs> something okay. like that, three or four times. <laughs> right. uh, and they said that this issue isn't justiciable at all because Congress uh, didn't uh, provide in the original FISA Act some sort of proceeding for uh, regular declassification. Um, hmm. So they said that this is not something that the FISA court uh, could even consider. Hmm. Uh, so we have to get around that justiciability problem. The second is the really interesting uh, story arc here of one Merrick Garland. So Merrick Garland in 2020 was an appeals court judge for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Right. Uh, and he wrote a very forceful opinion on the importance of openness in our justice system. Uh, to quote him, court decisions are public documents. Indeed, since at least the time of Edward III, judicial decisions have been open for public inspection. But Mr. Garland then was hired for a new position. He is, of course, now our attorney general. Uh, and now uh, his Justice Department is arguing in front of the Supreme Court that there is no justiciable First Amendment claim um, to have these decisions uh, issued, to, to have these decisions made public. Hmm. 
Um, so in some ways, it's kind of a tragic story arc. I'm sure in his heart of hearts, uh, he does really believe in transparency. Right. Um, but, um, of course, the Justice Department, for perhaps some legitimate reasons, some illegitimate reasons, is going to want to protect some of the secrets contained in these FISA decisions. Hmm. The, the stakes here are extremely high. The Supreme Court is set to meet to decide whether to take up this case. Generally, you need four justices to agree uh, to hear this case, which is brought um, by civil liberties groups led by the ACLU. And if we do get to the point where this series of FISA decisions are released from 2001 to 2015, I think we'd uh, you know have greater transparency in how courts arrived at these decisions um, and whether the Justice Department, as they've done in several other cases, um, you know, cut corners to to get the result that they wanted from the FISA court. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, something that's going to be really important to look at going forward. Hmm. Uh, based on the current makeup of the Supreme Court, any thoughts or, or predictions of where they might go? That's a, that's a good point. I don't think this really falls neatly on ideological lines necessarily. Hmm. You have justices like Alito and Thomas, um, who on national security matters, and, and actually Chief Justice Roberts as well, are quite deferential to the executive branch, um, saying that they have prerogative under Article 2 to protect the national security of the United States. Um, so this isn't just any other classified opinion. Mm-hmm. This has to do with national security, and there are limits to transparency uh, in that context. You have other justices, even some of the more conservative ones, like uh, Justice Gorsuch, who I think would be pretty amenable to transparency here. He kind of has a, a libertarian streak and has been skeptical in the past of, of government surveillance programs. Hmm. So I, I think it's a, I think it's a 50-50 toss-up okay. as to whether they would consider this case and, and how they'd rule on this case. Right. Again, I'm terrible at uh, prognostication and Sports, politics, and <laughs> everything else I try to prognosticate. Weather. Right. Okay. Uh, but that's just fair my, that's just my uh, mildly informed opinion. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, again, we will have a link to that uh, story in the show notes that comes from the New York Times. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can email us. Our email address is caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. 
All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Rob Chevelle from an organization called Delete Me, and uh, our conversation centers on the notion of protecting local officials from doxing and threats. We've seen a lot of that sort of thing going on lately. I mean, even down to school boards and things like that. Uh, here's my conversation with Rob Chevelle. When things get politicized, which they increasingly seem to be in our country, one of the new vectors of uh, threat, revenge, retaliation, uh, harassment, whatever set of names you want to throw at it, is to take uh, people's information online and use it against them. And so uh, really that is, that is sort of the new reality of, of unfortunately incidents that are cropping up, not just with school boards, uh, but, but frankly across a lot of different domains. And that is in some ways sad to see uh, and, and in other ways um, sort of unfortunately and fortunately driving incredible growth in our Delete Me business, which goes out and removes this kind of exposed personal information that's out there about people. Do you have any specific examples of, of what people are facing here that can kind of illustrate the problem? Well, well often there's sort of two categories of things that will often happen. One I would call impersonation type of attacks, where by getting people's personal profiles and detailed personal information, which anybody can really do these days by Googling somebody's name and paying a few dollars to a data broker to get a detailed profile, uh, which contains typically uh, information about us, our home, our past addresses, our relatives' names, our marital status, the net worth of our house, all kinds of things that you wouldn't imagine uh, are easy to find in one place about us. And then they can, people can use that to uh, impersonate us uh, in different ways. So for example, mm-hmm. you could act as if you're a member of the school board and email other parents or members of the school board, impersonating them with very accurate email addresses and and information that would seem like it could only be from that individual. And that kind of creates, uh, you know, its own set of issues. Uh, You can do it on social media where it happens often, uh, that sort of thing. And incidentally, it's not so relevant to the particular incident that you raised with the school board, but this is a very important and growing problem for companies to address because what happens is hackers will go impersonate executives at companies and uh, get people into trouble divulging information that then allows them access to the network and, and, and all kinds of things like that. So it's actually a, becoming a cybersecurity threat, not just a uh, harassment threat. So that's sort of one area of specifics around how this information that's out there about all of us is getting used inappropriately and, and frankly abused. The other area is, it, you know, we, we generally call doxing and it, and it's much simpler, which is if there are particularly constituents in a situation like this that are angry with a particular person, say a school board member, they can just post on social media or a web page or a blog or, or whatever intimate details of that person's, uh, personal information and then say to people, Hey, you know, this is where this person lives. This is what their house looks like. This is who their children are. And whether or not there's a credible threat linked to that, it can be very, very disturbing because it could happen. And in fact, 
there have been cases where horrifying incidents, you know, that threatened people's physical well-being actually did happen, which started out with the posting of exposed information online. Hmm. Now, in the work that you do at Delete Me, I mean, are, are there common things that that people have left behind online that they don't consider that you know they, they don't think about when they're they're thinking about their their digital history? Well, I would respond to that everything. Uh, in fact, most people hmm. have no idea. Uh, while 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 over half of us have Googled ourselves uh, and sort of seen you know, what, what some of the results look like when we do that. Uh, and what you'll find, I think, and what your listeners will find if they, if they do a quick Google search for their name and their address, the first several pages of Google will be littered with data brokers, people like whitepages.com and Spokio and Intellius and Radaris and background checker and reverse number lookup. All of these companies that we call data brokers will be out there uh, responding to those queries about us and offering anyone who wants to pay for it detailed profile information uh, for very uh, small amounts of money. So the original question was, well, what's, what have people left behind? Do they, do they even know what they've left behind and, and, and where they left it? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, these data brokers have generally never gotten consent from any citizen. And by the way, they have information on all 300 million you know, adult Americans and children at this point. They've never gotten consent for it. They've bought it. They've scraped it. They've aggregated it. When we sign up for things like mobile apps, they'll go, they'll go, if some innocuous mobile app or our child has played some game, they'll go to the publisher and buy all that information on the back end and never tell anyone. And it's all quote unquote legal because we don't pay attention to the terms of service when we do things. And, you know, that ain't going to change. Hmm. What is the process that you all use then? If someone engages with you and they say, I need some help, you know, cleaning up this stuff, uh, how do you go about doing that? Um, so as an entrepreneur, I personally hated services and guides that, that just told you what to do, but made you do it um, because I'm busy and I didn't have the time. Uh, and so you know, one of the reasons why we created Delete Me was so that we could be the experts that do this stuff for people that don't have uh, a whole lot of time to go do it. You know, there's there's a hundred popular data brokers out there. They're changing, you know, every six months. Uh, you have to be vigilant uh, in going out and asking each one of them through a separate process that may or may not uh, require you to submit different information and then wait for a confirmation. And, you know, they don't make it easy, uh, in short. And so our service basically does it for you. You sign up, takes five minutes. We, you, you put in your information, uh, and then we go out and search for it. Our privacy experts then deliver a report to you that says, Hey, here's where we found your information. Here's exactly what we found. Here's how exposed your phone number is out there, your children's names, your, your employer, your past addresses, your social security number, whatever information we find out there, it gets very clearly delivered to you in an emailed report. You, know, you never have to log into a dashboard if you don't want to. And then uh, our service goes out and actually does the opt-out and removals on your behalf. And so 30 to 60 days after your mm. report, 
uh, if you go back and Google yourself, and most of our customers do because they want to check and make sure that our service actually delivers, what you'll find is far fewer exposed information profiles at data brokers about you. And then over time, we deliver reports every quarter to you and we go and check and make sure uh, you're cleaned up effectively all year long for a single price. Over time, your digital footprint and that information that's out there and exposed and easily searchable about you will go down dramatically. I, I have to say, uh, it's not perfect. No service is perfect. We can't delete you from the internet. Uh, but we do a good enough job to have a 4.75 out of five star review. And we've been in business for 10 years. From a policy point of view here, I mean, is it, as someone who works in this space, is, is it frustrating to you that, uh, you know, the default is that these organizations are allowed to gather up all this information? Is this something you, you'd hope to see eventually, you know, consumers having more control over? I think it's very frustrating. Uh, if you read a little bit of recent history, uh, if you're a financial regulatory nerd, and you go back to when the United States created the credit bureaus that we're all scarily familiar with, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, those bureaus had access to lots of different financial data to create these credit profiles about us, but they were also regulated by Congress. And I think it's very important to juxtapose uh, the government and, and oversight that was created around those to today's data brokers who have basically for 20 years since the internet uh, came about uh, broadly have been allowed to do whatever they want. So in effect, whether it's a democratic administration or a Republican administration, they've, they've just encouraged technical development and looked the other way. And now we have thousands of unregulated experience and Equifax running around collecting our data with basically no rules and selling it to basically anybody, a hacker, a foreign government, a lawyer, an insurance company, people that we would not want to have easy access to all of this information about us, uh, you know, in one easy and, and inexpensive profile. So I think it is very frustrating that this has gone on for so long and these uh, data brokers have become so sophisticated and good at correlating and assembling uh, more and more data points about us. And as we all know, we are generating much, much, each of us is generating much, much more data every year that goes by. So, so yes, I'm very frustrated. At the same time, and this is the, the silver lining here, I'm very encouraged that governments across the world and states uh, here in the United States are steadily passing new uh, laws and regulations that empower consumers to access their data in ways they couldn't before from third parties that have it uh, correct it and to delete it. So I think the trend from a regulatory standpoint, both in the U.S. and globally, is very positive uh, for giving consumers back some rights that they've lost since the Internet began. All right, Ben, what do you think? It's just a really dangerous time to be a local official because mm. passions are extremely high. I mean, we've seen these raucous school board meetings. 
um, where there are really intense discussions about, first it was school closures last year. Right. Um, now it's things like uh, testing, masks, and in some cases, namely California, um, vaccine requirements. Right. Um, so there, there is going to be a lot of public on uh, local officials. Local officials have a job to do. They have some very difficult decisions to make. Um, they certainly deserve to have their uh, privacy protected. Um, they uh, have the right to be free from threats from the public. Uh, and so I think it's it's really important that they have all the tools at their disposal uh, to protect their own interests as, as public servants. Yeah. I wonder to what degree does this have a, overall a chilling effect on, you know, the, the – the people who would be willing to serve. Many of these uh, positions are volunteer positions, yep. or if if they are paid, it's you know it's a stipend. It's not it's not a career. It's not a full time job. No, yeah. and so I would imagine a lot of people thinking to themselves, "How is this possibly worth it? I don't need this headache." Yeah, I mean that's what really concerns me is we want very committed parents, community leaders, members to be on these boards, to be on school boards, right? Uh, to be part of these, you know, local governing institutions, uh, it isn't glamorous. You're not paid a lot of money, um, but these positions are extremely important. They make extremely consequential decisions. Yeah, uh, and it so, takes a lot of time. It's a lot of time, and if you just add the pressure of people literally sending death threats to some of these public officials, um, and you know, releasing their address, their physical address online. Uh, as we've seen in, in a number of circumstances, uh, which leads to harassment. Yeah. You worry that nobody's going to volunteer for these positions. Or, you know, the people that that do volunteer uh, might not be representative of the community at large. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's it's such an important issue. It's never been more important because we've never had such high-stakes, passionate arguments at— it, in, in front of these local boards. Yeah. I mean, we have to some extent, but not the way it is now where these are literal life and death issues. Right, right. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad that there is an effort to protect the privacy and the security of these public officials. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Rob Chevelle from Delete Me for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. 
Caveat podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.